You're listening to Conservation Connection. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running an environmental education nonprofit that's focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and to collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. Very excited to be here at the Sun Valley Forum 2023. This is our second year here in Sun Valley, Idaho, getting some great stories. Very excited. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have literally for years on this podcast. We're going to sit down with Lewis Perkins. He is the founding president of the Apparel Impact Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. So I'll let Chance start it off since he clearly has a direction that he wants to go with this show. I'm, well, I'm, I'm just excited for this conversation because what we're going <laughs> to talk about today is fast fashion. Yes. Right? Oh, we are. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and and the ways in which you and Apparel Impact Institute are sort of changing the game. Absolutely. So yeah. why don't you just dive in with like, what is Apparel Impact Institute and where are you going? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm Lewis Perkins, as you introduced, and I've been running this organization since we were founded, which was roughly five years ago. And we're a global organization. We're, we're a nonprofit, 501c3, um, but we operate globally as um, as a, I don't say a catalyst towards scaling impact solutions. That's not our mission statement. Our mission statement is we identify, fund, scale and measure proven solutions. But basically, we're helping the fashion industry identify those things which are ready for scale and let's get them rapidly scaled across the supply chain. And what I mean by that is really solutions that can help us reach our environmental targets. So whether it's to decarbonize the supply chain, create greater levels of water stewardship or, you know, wellness and communities where we're operating, you know, social and labor, all of it is on the table for what we could be doing. We've really narrowed in on the climate work, and I'm be happy to dive into that. But that's basically who we are, and we're working with um, some of the largest brand retailers in the world on helping to get their supply chains to meet some of their pretty ambitious targets for climate. Yeah, especially as consumers are looking for those, like you said, those targets of like you as a company, like how do you do fashion? Because we're kind of. I feel like we were very briefly like fast fashion and then we were like, oh, no, that's very bad. That's not good. Yeah. And I would say, you know, it's interesting because I have a I have a thought and an opinion. I, I come out of the sustainability space through kind of a, a journey from the from product side into circularity and now into sort of the. Um, as one of my my friends and philanthropists I work with said, now you're going where the sausage is being made, and so <laughs> so there's like a couple of ways, you know you can come at it from the materials, the design side, the the consumer relationship side, you know, and then there's like how this stuff is being made and what what the biggest elephant in the room, and I think you just have to say it up front is we're making so much stuff, 
and we're making it in a way that it's not being used. I mean, it'd be one thing if we were clothing the world and yeah, we're making, you know, billions of products, you know, annually to go around the world and everybody's using and wearing them. But the problem is the whole system is also set up to produce more than is necessary and then to discount it and make make this whole sort of um, equation work because you know that only a certain amount of products are going to get sold. Then you're going to rapidly discount them and then you're going to have product that you don't know what to do with. And if it's branded, you may not want it getting out in the market if, you know, and so you might burn it, it the or value, bury right? it or send it to a landfill or you might send it to Africa or another country as a donation, which also creates problems of flooding their market with waste or kind of de-incentivizing the creativity of their designers, you know, and so, so there's too much stuff that's being made and there's a, a model today that needs to be optimized around that. And I think that consumers can still have the variety they want. Cause I think that's what was cool about this idea of more affordable fashion is this looks really cool. It looks a lot like what I'm seeing in the magazines and on the runways and social media. And I can afford it cause it's only $49 for this top. It's not $490 for this top. So I'm going to buy three of them, you know, <laughs> and, it's right. like, and you know, okay. So, but then you have to kind of break down what's your relationship to it? How long are you holding on to it? What are you doing with it? And unfortunately, I think oftentimes when we didn't pay a lot for something, we don't treat it with the same level of respect. And the reality is a lot of times in fashion, um, it's the marketing that makes it more valuable. You can look at, uh, you know, a luxury brand's cotton V-neck T-shirt. And it's not that different than what you're going to see at an H&M, you know, but the reality is it's 10 times more expensive because it might, first of all, it might be better materials. It might be better, but a lot of times it's not as different as those price points might make you think. Exactly right. You know, the difference between like a 50 and a $500 cotton t-shirt is probably not 10 times the jump in quality. Absolutely. Right. But you, I think we could all agree in this room, if you were silly enough to spend $500 on a T-shirt, you would treat it really special, right? right. You would you, never dry that T-shirt, <laughs> only hang dry. You would freak <laughs> out if you got spaghetti sauce on it. Right. You, know, you would be like, ah, you know. So I think that's just – we put valuation on things based on what we've paid for them, you know. Fashion is a really interesting industry to me because it's sort of this intersection of like – Raw materials, like the, how are we finding enough raw materials to create this? Um, how are we marketing to people? And how are we dealing with this product and its relatively short lifespan compared to some other products? Like there's a lot of conversations to be had about like, it, it's just a really sticky problem to optimize it for sustainability solutions, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's complicated to when you say like, is this product sustainable or not? And this is what the consumer wants to know. And you're like, oh my God, well, how do we break this down? And then you like go into all the many ways in which it is and it isn't, right? And I think that's where, you know, there's there's a tremendous amount of work that's being done. But, you know, a lot of the brands that are getting slammed in the media and a lot of the fast fashion, ter- you know, termed fast fashion companies um, maybe you know, more thrown on the chopping block than some of the brands that are authentically sustainable. But the reality is they're all using coal in the production of it. They're all using the best materials I can get their hands on. And oftentimes it's not very sustainable materials or, you know, so I think we have to like really break it down and kind of look at, um, you know, levels of impact too. like how much volume are they producing? And then like, you know, one large corporation who makes 
a shift of 5% in the amount of organic cotton they purchase or how much recycled content they're going to put in those polyester t-shirts could be much larger in terms of global positive impact. But then again, you've got all this high volume too. So it's a little bit of a, you know, catch 22 as well. Mm -hmm. So how long has Apparel Impact Institute been around? Yep. So we were conceptualized and, and the press release went out uh, in the fall of 17. Okay. And then I came on board right in 18. And so I was I was part of a group of leaders in the space that came together in the fall of um, 17, right, when it was being sort of conceptualized and had planted some seeds with, with, you know, some seeds were planted. I was running the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute at the time, and we had a whole fashion initiative on circularity. And, and so I'd gotten to know the space pretty well. And I was, was pretty um, excited about what I heard this thing could be in 2017 when we when it was first announced. Yeah. And then we kind of started building it in 2018. Awesome. So what did the founding of that look like? And yeah. how have you seen it change since 2018? Oh, great question. So the founding of it was this. So, you know, for your listeners and anyone that is interested, what was happening in the sustainability space in the fashion industry? And I will say, this is an industry that's gotten pretty darn organized. You know, you can you can say what you will about it, and it definitely has a lot of pros and cons in terms of how this industry has been moving fast enough, slow enough, but it's pretty well organized. And a lot of that came from the outdoor apparel sector where it's authentic to the brand, right? You know, the Patagonias and the Burtons and the North Faces is like, you know, their customer base and athletics and yoga and like a lot, you know, the customer base was interested in knowing that the product was standing behind it. So you saw a lot of good movement coming out of that. And around, oh, I think it's 2008, but towards the last part of that decade, decade, um, a group of um, brands came together. It was really Nike, Patagonia, and Walmart that really got the conversation started around, we're all looking at a shared supply chain. We don't own these suppliers. We all source from them. And we have a lot of leverage if we came together because one of us isn't going to be able to turn the whole supply chain into a more sustainable one. And we can make all the right decisions on our end, but we ultimately need to do this as collective action. And it started with aligning audits, just like, can we just basically at the time, these brands were sending in an auditor on the environmental and social side. Like you might have an auditor come in on a Tuesday that Nike had sent in. And then, you know, on the following week, you might have Adi, uh, Adidas or Adidas, wherever you're from, mm -hmm. you might say different, uh, might send in a different auditor. And they're basically looking for the same stuff. So it's like, can we just streamline this? And then if we did, we'd actually have some streamlined data sets, which could actually help indicate that. So the Sustainable Apparel Coalition was born to be a trade membership association that would work with all the big brand retailers, bring in all their big suppliers and small suppliers, and start looking at like measurement across common tools, around materials, around manufacturing, et cetera. So now fast forward another nine, 10 years, and we're getting into 17, you know, 18. And a couple of the brands are like, this is great. This is really important work. But if we're not doing anything with the data, <laughs> yeah. then, you know, and they were all doing some things. There was work that was happening, but it wasn't organized in the same way. So now that we're organizing the audit process, let's organize the intervention process. Now that factory wants to know, okay, I have a score of X, Y, or Z, and I want to improve that score and be a more sustainable supplier. 
what do you want me to do? And it was like, well, Nike wants you to do this and Adidas wants you to do that and New Balance wants, you know, and so all of a sudden it was like, okay, maybe we can streamline that too. So can you help me as a supplier figure out all the initiatives out there and just kind of come together around what you want us to do so I'm not getting 10 directions? And then the brand retailers, the same way, they were getting hit up all the time with new programs. We're running a water stewardship program in Bangladesh. We're running an energy efficiency program in Italy. We're running a wastewater treatment program in India. And you're like, can I evaluate? I'm in all those supply chains. Why does it have to be three different programs? What right. if it was one? So that was the impetus for it. To answer the first part mm-hmm. of your question, like that was it. So it was Target Corporation, Gap Inc., and PVH who really led the charge. There were a lot of other brands that were involved in the conversation at the time. But they said, let's let's build out an impact institute that we will pool our resources and our agreed upon direction so we can sort of operate from agreements for the industry and say, these are the programs we want to get scaled. And that was the other piece. There was stuff working and it just wasn't scaling. So if we could start to say, we agree, energy efficiency programs are great. Let's get all the people out there working on energy efficiency and water efficiency and mills to come together in an alliance and basically present kind of one direction, then we can start funding that across global supply chains. It sounds just kind of like this story of we have all of these horses that are running all these directions doing great things, yeah. but if we can harness them all to the same carriage, totally. we're going to move a lot faster. If we have totally. somebody directing the everybody to, to, towards the same goal, it's going to go a lot faster. Well, and meanwhile, let's talk about the money because the money behind all of this is the, is the key. And so there was tremendous inefficiency around money, which was a lot of it was being supported by philanthropy and corporate subsidy, I would say. So it was being underwritten by basically grant making dollars. There wasn't debt or equity investment involved with this. It was all, you know, um, let's underwrite these programs. And so a brand would take their sourcing budgets out of their corporate treasury, maybe some philanthropic dollars, and they would underwrite this stuff. So now if I have an initiative for wastewater and I want to go get, you know, Target to fund it, you know, I'm competing with everybody else who has a wastewater program. So I've got to be the shinier, prettier, better one with the better marketing and the cooler annual conference and the this, that, and the other. So all these NGOs, startups, nonprofits, engineering, like, you know, they're all kind of competing for the same dollars. And there were very few big philanthropists in the space. And that was the seed, which I'll tell you about our Fashion Climate Fund in a minute or later. But that's what made me go, you know what we need is a really big slush fund. We don't need a bunch of little funds. We don't need to compete. We need like one really big climate fund (laughs) and that, but how much should it be and all that, which we did some work to figure that out too. So that was really a part of it was like, let's signal the market in the same direction and then let's pull our resources and stop making them compete. Rather than competition, let's look at this as everyone's a collaborator. So if you've got 10 programs that are doing similar stuff, why can't they all be like service providers under a common this is the framework, these are the agreements, this is what the price point is, these are the countries we distribute in, and then you'll have you know, all these different players that kind of compete with that. To me, it was like lead certification with buildings. You weren't going to just have one architect that built all the lead, designed all the lead buildings and one engineering firm. But you had to have hundreds, if not thousands of art- architects, designers, specifiers. You had to have a whole army of people. And yeah, they're competing for bids so that if I'm building a new building, I can go bid it out. And do- So we almost needed, but but everybody's part of a movement, right? There's like, all, everybody's sort of following a common, Common roadmap. Yeah, absolutely. 
How did you find yourself in this space of fashion? Was it something you were always passionate about? Yeah, let's go way back. I I want to go way back. I want to hear how you ended up here. Well, when I was like five, I went to school one day wearing all red. And I remember the teacher was like, did you dress yourself? And I was so embarrassed. I was like, no, my mom made me wear this. But in fact, I did. No, no, no. So I was always like that kid that would wear like the red shoes, the red socks, the red pants, the red. Um, No, I think that um, I didn't ever really think of my myself as like a super fashionable person. I wasn't like edgy and all that kind of way, but, but I always thought it was super interesting. I'm, I'm very interested in, um, the arts. And what I mean by that is the arts as a reflection of society and the times in which it was produced and the stories that it tells. So whether it's music, poetry, um, theater, uh, you know, art, visual arts or fashion, it's a megaphone. It's how we brand ourselves. It's how we tell stories. It's how we say things. And so I, I thought fashion was very interesting from that perspective, because whether you think you're fashionable or not, or you go, I'm not really into fashion, but if you stop and you go, well, what are you wearing? And you're like, well, I'm just wearing like a Patagonia pullover and some Levi's jeans and, you know, some Nikes. You're saying something about yourself. There's still choices that you made and, and you're how telling, you're presenting yourself to the you're world. You're saying something, right? Right. If you're on the West Coast, like there's a uniform form in tech and it is the Patagonia pullover, you know, like, <laughs> and if you're on the East Coast, there's uniform, you know, if you're in New England and you're wearing vineyard vines, you know, you're a prep and, you know, there's uniforms and we like fought whether you think you're into it or not, we're tribal people. And so, you know, so we're telling stories about ourselves and all that. So I always thought it was super interesting. I didn't have any interest in working in it necessarily. My background was really in corporate social responsibility. That's kind of, I came up through that world. I worked the art history as an undergrad took me into the museum world, but then I got involved in the Atlanta Olympic games where we were doing the big art exhibition and we were doing corporate fundraising. And I was really interested in how corporations used good (laughs) to market and brand to consumers, you know, like I'm a bank and I want to have more African-American clients. So I'm going to sponsor the Royal Art of Africa exhibit at the museum, or I am trying to, you know, tell a story about what I believe in at Coca-Cola. So I'm going to sponsor World Water Day or whatever, you know, and so, but they didn't always match, right? Because you'd see like some of the biggest cosmetic companies would be sponsoring Susan Komen Breast Cancer Walk. And it's the chemicals, the neurotypes toxins, the endocrine disruptors in those products that might be causing breast cancer to begin with, right? So there was a real like – I saw it as like buying pardons from the Pope, you know, like so 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 that's my early thinking about this. And then fashion, interestingly, I had this very short experience where I was – I was a consultant after business school doing tech strategy consulting. So that was a little a little blip, which now plays very much into what I'm doing. It's very interesting how it all comes together. But I went to Argentina for a wedding of a friend of mine and one of her – a friend from business school. And one of her dear friends was working um, with a bunch of designers in, in South America. And so we created this import company where we brought South American fashion into the U.S. I didn't think – this is before I got into sustainability. So I really didn't think that was going to have anything to do with it. But I was very interested in the – I learned how – the production, the sales, like the sourcing. Like I learned how all that worked. And then I got into sustainability work. And that's a whole thing I got in through, like I said, the built environment. I went to go work for Mohawk Industries, which is a carpet flooring tile manufacturer and was their head of sustainable strategies for all the commercial product they were selling in buildings. And so that got me into this whole space. 
And that got me into Cradle to Cradle, which was the book that William McDonough and Michael Bromgard had written, which became a design methodology on circularity, which also then became a standard. And so I ended up working for the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. And we had a 40,000 euro line item from the Dutch postcode lottery to build out a textile strategy. So I took that that $40,000 grant and used it to build, to do research and build a strategy for circularity in the fashion industry. And that was in 2013, 14. So it's been 10 years. And that's when I really got into it. So you asked me, I told you the long, the long windy <laughs> trail, you know, blipping in and out of corporate social responsibility, a little, a little tease in the South American fashion <laughs> world. And then I was always like, I'm so schizophrenic in my career. And now it all made sense because everything built on itself and became exactly the expertise I needed all these years later to be doing something like what we're doing. So I think that is such an excellent case study in like, just trust the process, be okay with yeah. sort of following this jagged path because yep. the skills that you don't know you need are what you're learning right now. And you will 100% need them when you get where you're supposed to be. I, you know, when I talk to one of the things that I always try to make myself available for is um, talking to younger people, getting their careers going. It's hard because I mean, there's only so many hours in the day, but I just remember being that person who was lost and clueless, but smart and had some good education. And, you know, I was like, I, you know, but I didn't really know ever what I really thought I was here to do until it all started to, but I always say, and this sounds so cheesy and right out of like some self-help book, but it really is to follow your heart and to lean into what brings you alive. And like, if you're talking about something and you get chills in your arm or something, you know, you have the hair on the back of your head, like, that's it. You're on the path. Just lean in, just lean in. Your body's trying to tell you you're, something. You're, Listen this is to what it. you're supposed to do because, you know, that carries you if you're passionate about what you're doing. And so like, even for my own kids, I have two, you know, as they get older, they're too young to ask career advice yet. But <laughs> as they get older, and you know, it'll be like, I'm going to support you. If you love this, you just hang in there. And then I would say, and just give it your all, right? You know, and if you can't give it your all, what could you give your all to? Like, find that thing you really would want to give your all to, you know? Yeah, definitely yeah. get that. Especially as, yeah. you know, we've gone through the journey of, of building our nonprofit over the past five years and yeah. just like... I always tell people, I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. Like it, I, I have been literally talking to people about the environment since I was five years old. Yeah. Just, I, this is, I think, what I was put here to do. And I love it. And it's work. And it's terrifying plenty of times. But it's it, it's good. And I can give my all to it. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. like you were saying. Because it feeds you. And I think that's, you know, last night here at the conference, there was a speaker. And he asked the question of the room about, you know, who here feels like they are abundant or have abundance in their life. And you know, majority of the room raised their hand. And I don't think that would be true for a lot of people, but we, this was a curated group of people who are all doing purpose-driven work. And I think that speaks to itself. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like you're doing some huge save the planet initiative, but there's like, what is that thing that just like makes your heart feel good? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, one of the interesting things that you shared about your journey is that you weren't always in fashion, but you were always interested in art and yeah. it's like its role in humanity. Like yep. it being part of what makes us human. Yep. And and I just really, I like that idea of like taking this larger idea that you know that you're interested in 
yep. art as an expression and then narrowing that down, focusing that down into a way that you can make a difference Absolutely. with making fashion more sustainable, which is historically a place where there's a lot of problems, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of problems to be solved in the fashion industry and you have perfectly positioned yourself to be leading the charge on solving a lot of those problems. Yeah. It's funny. I just kind of laugh sometimes that I'm, that I'm like, how did I wake up here? You know, I'm, what am I doing this, but, but it, it is, um, for me, I think it's about finding ways in which I'm helping people. And sometimes you're like getting carbon out of a factory. How's that really helping people? But it, it's helping that factory work or have a more viable business that he or she can continue to produce. It's economic development. It's, you know, um, and, and I think that, you know, ultimately it's also, you know, climate, planet, like that's all of humanity's impact, right? And so anytime we're getting carbon out of something, we're like helping to the longer, the longer term work of, of our society on this planet. But I think a lot about, you know, for me, um, feeling like the work is actually impacting humans. Cause I'm one of those people who also believes once or if we're gone, the planet will have the ability to reheal itself. A lot will be lost, but a lot will regrow. And, but if we, you know, but will we be here? Right. And so I think that's the work of our, time you hear this is not my expression you hear this all the time it's not about saving the planet it's about saving humanity's ability to be on this planet right yeah absolutely absolutely i think it's really interesting to hear like your path like your journey to this point because especially at the sun valley forum a lot of the speakers that we end up talking to have a very similar path you know they went into business or we were talking to someone else who was like oh let me try out like green architecture and i don't like that so let me try out like sustainable business she was like eh, it's not really what i want to do and then eventually found where she was supposed to be so even though it's not this clear path of like this is what i want to be and i know that's what i want to be and i am that as soon as i'm out of college totally i think yeah. that's a really cool story to hear repeated in these episodes that like you don't have to get it right, right away, you no, know? No, no. And I, in fact, if you did, it would be a little frightening, I think, because I think <laughs> what you, you would come up to, I was talking to um, a friend recently who said, you know, I had a goal and my goal was to be um, chief technology officer of a tech company by the time I was 30. And he achieved it at 29 and then he didn't know what to do. And I think you hear that a lot. Like, so be careful because if you think that that's the end, it's not the end, you know, and like you, so even in, you know, as I say, like here, I have this meandering path. Did I have a strategy? Did I have a direction? Did I know where I was going with any of this? I really didn't. But I think that um, I have done like strategy setting and like, I'd like to be here at this and this and this and this. And, you know, the thing is it's helpful because it gives you an indicator of like, it's like doing a vision board, right? If you just put that you want to have a house in the mountains, you just get reiterating the message and maybe one day you'll have a house in the mountains. You're, you're sort of putting like what your values out there for you to see and lean into um, and get clear on them. Right. But the reality is um, it may not be that it's probably gonna be very different than what you think it is. Some people do accomplish exactly what they want and they may not be happy, you know, because cash and prizes at the end of the day, isn't really what it's about, even though it feels that way sometimes. And I think for a lot of us, particularly in America, where we're sort of sold this American dream and you got to, you know, like be successful and do well and have the three car garage and the, this and the vacation house and da 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 da. And it's like, at the end of the day, 
um, that we all know that isn't going to create the most value. And what does is this finding this thing that you love that just doesn't even feel like work. Yeah, absolutely. So Mr. Fashion himself is wearing a pretty incredible blazer jacket <laughs> with an embroidered um, peacock on the shoulder. And I just wanted, you said that there was a cool yes. story about that and I'd love to hear it. Yeah, well, it's funny because I'm wearing, as I'm wearing, I'm wearing like some Levi's denim and I'm wearing some Rothy's shoes and a Hugo Boss shirt that's also like predominantly recycled poly. And recycled poly is a whole other thing. We can go pros and cons on that, but we are getting, you know, plastic out of oceans and waste streams and putting them into other products, at least as a temporary transition. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, Recycle Poly is one of the solutions and at least in an interim way as we start to think about better ways to look at long-term plastic. But I think what you're talking about is not these <laughs> things, but this jacket that I'm wearing. So, um, yeah, I, you know, one of the, as you look at the movement of sustainability in fashion, you've got all the like fixing up the supply chain, you've got all the next generation material stuff that's getting really cool and interesting. And that's all on the production design side, designing for circular economy and all this production design sourcing. And then you've got the consumer and the life of the product after the consumer. And that's this whole shared economy, circular economy models and businesses that are emerging. And what that means in fashion is it's vintage, it's upcycle, it's repair, it's swap, it's share, it's rent. It's everything that says, rather than make a brand new product, what can we do with existing products to keep them in life as long as possible? Because the reality is I could design this jacket to be recyclable. And then as soon as I'm done with it, because it has moth holes on the sleeve or something, I'd be like, let's recycle it. And then the, all the embedded energy labor, water, and use only had that life cycle of that first use phase of that jacket for however long I would have had it, maybe a year, five years, you know, before the moths found it, right? So all of a sudden you're like, okay, but if I extend the use of that jacket for a much, much longer period of time, then I've actually divided up the burden of the production of that product across a longer cycle. Right. I mean, this is just so we're trying to get people to think about buying stuff that lasts. So we started this conversation around like, you know, the $49 top from H&M versus the $490 Chanel top that looks very similar. But it's like, what's the difference? And it's like the reality is if you can start to look at everything is like, how can I hold on to this, create value for it, find new ways to enjoy it? Maybe it is like taking the pockets off and putting some new colorful pockets on or tie-dyeing it after a couple of years, like something to make it cool and interesting or sharing it with your friends or swapping it. Like all of this, if we can embed this into the culture is going to be one of the solutions. It's not like we're not going to all stop going out and buying brand new product, but it is part of the solution for holding on to things longer and lasting their burden. So this jacket that I'm wearing is, is an example of that. And um, the story behind this jacket is it's one of my jobs somewhere along the way where I got a raise and I was making a little bit more money. I was really excited to buy like a real suit. And I was buying nice enough suits at the mall, but this one would be like a really a luxury brand. It's, it's Etro, which is Italian. And, uh, and I was in New York 
I was living in Atlanta at the time, but I went to Barney's, New York, and they were having a sale. So that even spoke to me even better. <laughs> so I bought this terribly expensive Italian wool etro suit with this really funky, cool silk lining inside and all that's got this wonderful little blue and gray pinstripe in it. And I just love the suit. And when I put it on, it was just as, it was like perfect. I didn't even have to tailor it. I was like, I was like the runway model that just put on the sample size <laughs> and it just fit me perfectly. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. You know, and and then um, I wore it, you know, a couple of times and I just loved it. And and it was and it was really fitted beautifully and perfect and all this stuff. And then at some point during the pandemic, because I wasn't wearing a lot, I wasn't pulling stuff out of my closet. I went into my closet and I looked because I thought I'm going to like do a little inventory of what's in my closet. And I found it and I was like, oh, that Etro suit I haven't worn in a while. I love it. And I put it on and sure enough in the shoulder, the moths had gotten to it. I knew it. we were going to come back to the we're moths. You back brought to them the up too many times. I was <laughs> so, I mean, I think I wept a little bit. I was really, and so I was like, okay, wait, what can we do about this? This is not a cheap suit. So I'd be willing to put some money into re-threading this fabric. So you can, it's almost like darning a sock. There are mm -hmm. people that can go in and do it, but it's not going to look, I mean, it's not going to look like the fabric you're going to see it it's just they're going to be really good at going in and and kind of reweaving basically is what it's called they're going to reweave in that hole and you're going to be able to see that it was rewoven but it'll be but it'll be high and it's expensive hundreds of dollars to do it and i was like or or what if i embellished it somehow you know and like did an embroidery so i searched i live in the bay area so i was searching all over oakland and san francisco and everywhere to find somebody that would do embroidery work on i wanted to do like a vine over the holes or something really organic and cool and ultimately all the embroiderers that i talked to were, were like we just do big big embroidery jobs like bring me you know a thousand baseball caps to embroider, right. em embroider with your team's logo. Like I couldn't find anyone that would do. And so finally a couple of them kept saying patches. And I was like, uh, cause I was a boy scout. I know what patches are. I had my <laughs> merit badges. I was like, a patch is going to make this really chic suit look not so chic. It's cool. It's interesting, but it felt very like Che Guevara. Like I was going to have some kind of a yeah. revolutionary patch <laughs> on my sleeve because the holes are right on my left shoulder. So I was like, okay, on my sleeve, I'm going to have some military looking square or something. Yeah, I was th yeah. exactly like right where you would put yeah. like an American flag patch yes. on a soldier's uniform. It's exactly, that's exactly where it is. And I, so I thought, well, that could be kind of counter and interesting and provocative. And what could I do? So I, or I went online, I ordered a bunch of different kinds of embroidered patches from Etsy and um, and they weren't cheap either, but they were a lot cheaper than, you know, they were like, you know, 20 bucks to 40 bucks each. So I was like, that's an expensive patch. I thought they'd be like $3 or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so I ordered a couple of them. And the one that I landed on, thank you for letting me tell this story, by the way, because <laughs> I love the story, is um, silver and gray and silver threaded and gray and black threaded. And it is a peacock. And it is so cool looking, I think. Or some kind yeah. of bird. Is it a peacock? Yeah, it's a peacock. It's a peacock, yeah. And it is this really sort of exotic looking, and I think all the silver threading on it and the spot, it's very like deco-y looking and all that. Yeah. So anyway, that's what it is. And it's and it's about five inches long and goes from the top of the shoulder down into the mid mid arm and uh mid upper arm, you know, bicep. And uh it's cool. I really like it. And if you guys are sitting here <laughs> listening to this story about this patch and you're really wishing you could see it, go find our Instagram. 
when we post this episode of the podcast, we'll, t- we'll have a picture here yeah, uh, with Lewis it. and his patch. I, I kind of <laughs> geeked out. You're going to see it and be like, whatever. But <laughs> you're going to be like, that's cool. I love yeah. it. And you know, the thing about it is what I love about this is that a former version of me would have just gotten rid of the suit and really been upset about it. And I, so I think what the movement is telling us is to get creative. And now it's a story. It's actually more meaningful to me now than it was as the brand new Barney's New York Etro suit, because as special as I thought it was, and I spent more money on it than I had ever, you know, it was not unique. There were more of them and there were other suits. Now this thing is a one of a kind. Yeah. And it's got a great story, which I just wasted all this audience time to, to share. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. Yeah. And I, what I really hope that it, it, it sort of signifies or is an example of is that we as a culture yeah. are re-embracing older techniques of making clothes, making everything in general last longer through repair, as opposed to this ultra consumerist purchase, use, throw away, purchase a new one, use, throw away. Yeah. Right. And and I think that culture swings back and forth and back and forth. And I hope that the pendulum is on its way back towards a more thoughtful reuse and upcycle side. Totally. And what I would say, you know, I mean, the, we t- with a lot of sustainability stuff, we just say this is the way, way our grandmothers or great grandmothers or grandparents did it. You know, it was just the mindfulness of resources at a time when Americans weren't as wealthy or didn't have as much access to credit. Because I would say we're probably not that much wealthier. We just probably overextend ourselves. And so people can just buy and, you know, rack up debt and just have lots of stuff. The average, you hear a lot of averages, but but the average, you know, person is only using a third of their closet and the rest of those two thirds, they're not even like so so the tip is, you know, move stuff around. Like just everything that's on the sides move to the middle and the middle move to the sides. And then I think what the pan- pandemic kind of taught me was because I was at home a lot wearing a lot of my athleisure wear, like most Americans, and I was doing some online ordering. I was like what other comfortable things are on sale now because supply chains for a moment were so broken. Everybody's freaking out. Everything got slashed and you could mm-hmm. like talk about like, you know, overbuying, you know, you could overbuy quickly. Um, and what I really started to realize is like, I've got some really interesting things in the closet that I kind of hold for a special day. It's kind of like they always say, you should wear your best colognes and perfumes. Like why save them? Just wear the expensive cologne or perfume, you know, like wear the good jewelry, wear the, you know. And so I think for me, I encourage people to go like, find that funky thing and just like start wearing it. Like, don't get so boring that we're just all wearing like shirts and jeans and t-shirts that we wear all the time. Like you probably own some really funky shoes, like start wearing them all the time. Like you probably wear, have a weird scarf or a weird shirt, like that you got some weird place, like wear it all the time. Like basically get weird, get weird. (laughs) Yeah. Like let's bring back fashion. Like let's, let's not be so homogenous. Let's start like showing off our funky, cool stuff. Right. Cause it's a story and then it's unique. And I think that's what fashion really should be and what. If we can get everyone to start thinking of it that way and not as a commodity anymore, then it'll also shape some of these companies. They're just following our what they're feeding us a purchase plan and we're we're buying the purchase plan and we're all in this cycle. But if we start behaving differently, they'll start modifying for us differently, you know. Absolutely. Well, if somebody wanted to follow you, learn more. Where could yeah. I send them to to learn more about you and your institute? Absolutely. So our website is apparelimpact.org, all run together. And then we have a microsite for our fashion fund, which is called Fashion Climate Fund. 
fashionclimatefund.org. And it's got all the information the two sort of play in and out. They reference each other. You can read all our reports. You can read our case studies and everything we're doing. We're on Instagram under the Apparel Impact handle. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn. Go find us and follow us. You can find me. I'm Lewis Perkins. Um, I think that's just my handle on all those things too, at Lewis Perkins. Perfect. So if you guys want to go straight from listening, scroll down to the show notes. You can click on the links that I've dropped there. You guys can go straight to those websites and check out some more stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts helps other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to everyone working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. See you next time.